1: It's time to roll up those joints, pack those bowls, and fire up those nails, because you're listening to Blazin' with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio.
2: Alright, and welcome to another edition of Blazin'. As always, I'm your host, Bobby Black. You know, as most of you Probably know I am currently the West Coast editor of Greenleaf magazine. Uh, and if any of you out there have seen the latest issue of Greenleaf that's out now, it's a special glass issue. Uh, inside, you'll find my exclusive feature uh, of the new glass art documentary film entitled "Vagabond: Ameri- the American Pipe Dream. Well, my guest uh, later today is the director of that film, Mr. J.D. Maplesden, who will be giving us uh, the inside scoop on what it's about and how it all came together. That's coming up just after the break. But first, as always, it's time for a quick recap of the week's gnarliest news nugs. This is The Burndown. Burning through the smoke and mirrors of the news headlines. This is The Burndown. All right, first up in The Burndown this week, we begin in the Pacific Northwest in Washington, to be specific, where researchers at Washington State University began a new study this week aimed at developing a breathalyzer that detects marijuana. A group of lucky 21 and over stoner volunteers will actually be paid $30 an hour for the first hour and $10 for every additional hour after to smoke weed. <laughs> pretty good gig if you can get it. Uh, The study breaks down something like this. The volunteers are given a blood test and a mouth swab. Then they are sent out to purchase marijuana at a licensed shop and take it home to smoke it. They're then picked up by taxi because we, of course, wouldn't want them driving under the influence. And they're brought back to the hospital for a secondary round of testing uh, as well as partaking in a standard sobriety test conducted by local law enforcement. Uh, Don't worry. They are not going to be arrested afterwards. (laughs) The month long con- study will conclude in mid June. And right next door in Oregon, uh, in an effort to help boost cannabis tourism, the city of Portland has joined with cannabis businesses in lobbying for a bill that would allow consumption of cannabis at licensed lounges akin to tobacco smoking patios. Uh, you know, this is a similar, uh, there's been a lot of stories about this uh, in different states. Uh, we're starting to see a push towards licensing establishments for smoking, which is good to see. Um, Originally, the measure in Oregon allowed for consumption at temporary events and at indoor lounges, but after encountering some opposition, the events provision was dropped, and now only smoking on patios with at least one open wall will be permitted. Uh, These licenses would only be issued in cities or counties that pass ordinances that allow them. Proponents of the bill say that providing safe, regulated places to smoke would reduce the smoking in public places like sidewalks, vehicles and parks. Opponents, on the other hand, argue that it could expose workers at these establishments to, quote, dangerous secondhand smoke. I don't know how dangerous uh, secondhand cannabis smoke is, but okay. Uh, And that it would send the wrong message to children. You know, I'm pretty tired of hearing that uh, line, uh, sending the wrong message to children, you know. Uh, the health risks, uh, most of the health risks and gateway theory uh, around surrounding pot have been scientifically disproven. So this message to children seems to be like the last straw that they're clinging to. You know, nobody is suggesting nobody is suggesting that pot be given to children. You know, uh, this is an adult activity. Explain that to your children the same way you explain anything else that adults do like sex or drinking and move on. I mean, what message do beer commercials send to children or sexy videos on MTV? I mean, we cannot live our lives as adults worrying about how children are going to interpret or misinterpret what we're doing. And now it's on to the Midwest where the Ohio Supreme Court justice and prospective gubernatorial candidate William O'Neill has come out in favor of criminalizing marijuana. In a speech to Wayne County Democratic Party uh, last Friday night, O'Neill said he not only wants to legalize marijuana but also release all nonviolent marijuana offenders from prison, a move that he claimed would generate an estimated $350 million to combat drug addiction by allowing the Ohio Department of Mental Health to reopen a network of state hospitals that were closed decades ago. The time has come for new thinking, O'Neill said, treating addiction like the disease it is in the name of compassion. Sounds pretty sensible. He said the Democratic Party needs new ideas in 2018 if it wants to knock Republicans uh, out of control in the Ohio government. If he does run for governor, he'll be already he'll be joining an already crowded field of candidates seeking the office, including three Democratic and four possible Republican challengers. And now we head to New England where in a follow-up to last week, the bill to legalize cannabis in Vermont that we discussed is now on the desk of Republican Governor Phil Scott, who claims he has still undecided about how he wants to proceed. Spokespeople for the governor says he is not philosophically opposed to legalization, but has expressed reservations regarding certain public health and safety issues related to the bill. The governor now has until Thursday to decide whether to sign or veto it. If he does not act, it will become law automatically. Eli Harrington, cannabis advocate and co-founder of Heady Vermont, expects inaction to be the most likely outcome. I'll tell you with 80 percent confidence he won't sign the bill, but will let it become law, said uh, Harrington. Historically, he's much more practical than an ideologue. Vetoing the bill would draw negative political tension as opposed to not signing it and not supporting it, but letting it happen. Despite Attorney General Jeff Sessions' threats to go after the cannabis industry in legal states, most people nonetheless see regulated cannabis as an eventuality. The tipping point has happened, Harrington said. Cannabis is building schools, not killing people. Uh, Amen, brother. Amen. Next, we head down to Maryland, where in a unanimous vote Wednesday, the Merrick Maryland Medical Cannabis Commission, that's a mouthful, (laughs) granted final approval to a company called Forward Grow to immediately begin cultivating at what is now the state's first licensed grow, coming up four long years after marijuana uh, lawmakers legalized cannabis for medical use. Take your time, guys. (laughs) It's not like patients are waiting for that medicine. Um, the state's medical program has run into numerous delays as it struggled to get off the ground, including controversy that regulators failed to take applicants' race into consideration, which is apparently required under state law. Of the 15 companies that were granted preliminary cultivation licenses last August, Forward Grow is the first to earn final approval. The company, which has spent more than $10 million to build the state-of-the-art uh, greenhouse facility, Uh, expects the first products, including oils, tinctures, and vapor cartridges, to be available to the nearly 6,500 patients that applied for the program by early this fall. Also in Maryland, uh, this week, Marijuana Business Daily hosted their Cannabis Business uh, Conference and Expo this week, just outside the nation's capital. The big topic on everyone's mind was how will the Trump administration's policies affect the burgeoning marijuana industry? Uh, Although Jeff Sessions and Press Secretary Sean Spicer have signaled potential crackdown on a federal level, there's been no impact on the industry as of yet, as investors and business owners are hopeful that the businessman-in-chief himself will not want to thwart the gains on what is rapidly becoming the fastest-growing segment in our economy. Though revenue projections vary, that growth within the cannabis industry is undeniable. Nearly $1 billion in investment capital has flooded into the budding industry since 2012, And Marijuana Business Daily predicts that will increase nearly five fold in the coming year. They also predict cannabis retail sales will hit around 6.1 billion by the end of this year and may reach as high as 68 billion by 2021. That's if recreational and medical cannabis is legalized nationwide. So, what are you waiting for, guys? Let's do this. (laughs) And finally, this week on the burndown number one, we end. In the nation's capital, where a small bipartisan group of lawmakers is renewing their push to legalize marijuana at a federal level. Yay! Sponsored by Representative Thomas Garrett of Virginia and co sponsored by 11 other representatives, the Ending Federal Marijuana Prohibition Act would lift the nation's pot restrictions and allow states to decide individually how to regulate medical and recreational marijuana. Though states like Colorado have already legalized marijuana, they're still technically in violation of federal law, creating a confusing patchwork of pot laws around the country. Garrett, who is a former criminal prosecutor, did not always support uh, cannabis reform, but he says he grew tired of creating criminals out of people who otherwise follow the law. Uh, Representative Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii agrees that more than anything else, this is a criminal justice issue. The question before us is not whether you think marijuana use is good or bad or how you feel about the issue, but whether we should be turning people into criminals, she says. Every 42 seconds, someone is arrested for the use or possession of marijuana, turning everyday Americans into criminals and tearing families apart. Prohibitionist crusader and modern-day Harry Anslinger Kevin Sabet, ooh, the archenemy, <laughs> yeah, has a big surprise come out against the bill, saying – The marijuana industry is the next big tobacco of our time, and history will not look kindly upon those who enabled lobbyists and special interest groups to gain a foothold and putting profit ahead of public health and safety, he said. Well, Kevin, maybe to you this is just about profits and lobbyists, but to the rest of us, it's it's about not sending innocent people to prison. Civil rights is not a special interest. We're going to take a quick break now, but stick around because when we come back, we'll be talking with uh, Glass Artist and Film Director J.D. Mapleston. Stay tuned. You're listening to Blazing with Bobby Black on Cannabis Radio. I'd like to say a few words about our sponsors and my friends at 420 Science. I've known Matt and Gary from 420 Science for over a decade. We've spent a lot of time together at the Cannabis Cups in Amsterdam, the Doobie Awards in their hometown of Austin. They were even at my wedding. And I've always admired their integrity and how they've built 420 Science from the ground up to become the most trusted online head shop. Visit 420science.com slash podcast for an exclusive deal on pipes and more from genuine people who put their customers first. That's 420science.com slash podcast.
1: Want to grow your own weed but not sure where to get the seed? Go to bcbuddepot.com. For nearly 15 years, B.C. Bud Depot has been building one of the world's most comprehensive seed banks, offering over 50 strains of top-quality cannabis to suit every grower's needs, including multiple award-winning strains like Godbud, The Purps, B.C. Blueberry, Girl Scout Cookies, and more. In fact, B.C. Bud Depot's genetics have won over 30 different cannabis awards over the past decade, so you know you're dealing with a recognized industry leader that will deliver you some of the most potent, flavorful flowers on the planet. They ship worldwide, offering fast, discreet delivery at reasonable prices. All online orders are processed within 48 hours and are packaged and mailed with the utmost stealth and safety in mind. And if for some reason your order gets lost, damaged, or confiscated, BC Bud Depot will resend it at no extra charge guaranteeing that every customer receives what they paid for. Whether you're looking for indica or sativa, indoor or outdoor, feminized or auto flowering, BC Bud Depot has the seeds you need at a price you can handle. But don't take my word for it. Check out their extensive library of award-winning genetics for yourself at bcbuddepot.com and type in promo code BLAZIN420 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. BC Bud Depot home of Cannabis Champions since 2002. Please check your local, state, and national laws before ordering
3: the Cannabis World of Tomorrow converges for the first ever Southeast Cannabis Conference and Expo in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, June 9th to the 11th. Register right now at SECCExpo.com. TV talk icon Montel Williams, NFL All-Stars Ricky Williams, Marvin Washington, and Kyle Turley lead some of our top-tier panels in industry information, athletics, real estate, technology, medical research, and more meet hundreds of vendors, and thousands of entrepreneurs at the 2017 Southeast Cannabis Conference and Expo in Fort Lauderdale. Last-minute registration is open now at SECCExpo.com.
0: Next to THC and CBD, you can now add
1: CBR to your cannabis vernacular. CBR as in CannabisRadio.com.
2: All right, and welcome back to Blazin'. My guest today is J.D. Maplesden. He's a glass artist from Portland, Oregon, whose new documentary film, Vagabong, The American Pipe Dream, debuted this March in San Francisco. J.D., thanks for Blazin' with us today. Uh, Thank you guys so much for having me. So this is kind of like a little deja vu for us because uh, I actually sat down with you uh, not too long ago, a few months ago, um to talk to you about the film uh for a piece i did uh, a cover feature for greenleaf magazine but uh, i wanted to speak to you again and get some updates and also uh you know just just lay it all out for for my listeners
0: oh nice yeah no the article you wrote in um, greenleaf was awesome thank you so very much it's really cool to see the layout of it
2: cool you're very welcome um, so let's, uh, let's start at the beginning and talk a little about you and your background. Um, where are you from, and uh, what, uh, what led you to Oregon?
0: Um, I grew up in Northern California, and just I lived a very nomadic life where I hitchhiked a lot and traveled a lot, and I ended up in Post Falls, Idaho, and then ended up in Spokane, Washington when I was around 19 or 20. And I was selling glass for four or five different glass artists at that time when I landed in Spokane. And through me selling glass for different artists out of Southern Oregon, out of Portland, and out of Moscow, Idaho, I eventually found someone that gave me my first opportunity to blow glass in 2001. And from there, I lived in Spokane. I started in Spokane. I pretty much taught myself out of a book. I read a book and was a janitor for the first couple of years that I blew glass. And then after that, when I finally made the plunge to make pipes, because I was a little broke, the pendant game wasn't supporting my bills. So I switched over to pipe making and started taking classes from different artists like Marble Slinger, Scott Dosher. Um I've taken classes from, Kabuki, a number of non-pipe artists as well, Mickelson, Gianni Tosso. And over the course of like six years where I just, I made it my goal where every other month I either traveled to an artist's studio to work with somebody new or I took a class. And after doing that for four to six years, um, I was still living in Washington. I decided to open up a studio called Montage Studios in Spokane, Washington, and one of my best friends, Brandon Welch, Brando Glass, um, manages the studio still. He owns it and manages it. It's still up and up, up in operation. It has twelve artists that work out of there constantly. Um, I moved away from Spokane to go to Seattle and work for a company called Swiss Perk in 2010, and that was the first time I'd had a job since I was a janitor, and it was quite the change from doing whatever I wanted whenever I wanted like so to make these products and make sure that I was the prep boy so I made sure that everybody in the studio had enough materials so that they could to t- continue to work without a hiccup so that way we could um, produce the most amount of product possible and it was sweet because the Swiss perks were really fun because they were all you even though we were a production line we still made everyone different. None of no two piece was ever the same, so it kept that hand blown original feel to it. Even though we were working on like an assembly line at that point in time, wow. um, 2011, I broke away and did a little bit of my own work for about six months, and I was living in Bellingham, Washington at that time, working at a friend of mine's studio, Ivan, and. While I was working there, Scott Deppie approached me and asked me if I wanted to come work for the Mothership, and I couldn't pass up an opportunity like that. It was working with some of the best guys in the country. Um, they're all old friends, so it was really great just to be able to finally to work in the same studio with them all. And I helped Mothership start up the production line. I was one of the, I was the prep boy again, so it was whatever parts they needed me to make, I made those parts. And then I learned how to make the more advanced pieces as time went on because I wanted just my thirst for knowledge is really heavy, so I want to always try and be doing more. So I picked the hardest piece that we had on the production line, which was the Fabergé egg, and I put in my hard work and learned how to make that piece. Um, I produced a bunch of them in 2012. and 2013, they won the... Most innovative product of the year with that with the design of the Fab Egg. So it was really cool to be a part of this wave of this um, this company that was bigger than myself. And I just you know I worked my forty to fifty hour. I worked forty hours a week, and then I do overtime for myself so that I could always be pushing myself because it's like even if I'm getting doing my forty hours a week for the production line, I still needed to get at least ten to twenty hours a week for myself. Just to express my own creativity, because even though I was blowing glass, I wasn't being exploring new avenues and being creative. Um, I stopped yeah. working for them in 2014, right about the be like right at the first of the year. I decided that I wanted to go and try my own hand at it again. I had some ideas, and I spent a few months working at a friend of mine's place that in Bellingham, Whitney Harmon. He's an amazing, awesome artist, and he, like, gave me a space to work. And I spent three, four months developing my new style, like figuring out my new designs, how I wanted things to be. And then I took off on the road for about seven months and went all over the country. And at that time, I went up and down the West Coast, Denver. I went to every major city in the country that I thought I might want to live at (laughs) <laughs> because they had a progressive glass because they had a progressive glass scene. Like if I was gonna move out of my bubble, I wanted to move somewhere where there was like shit going on. Like people were doing <laughs> something. They were like I wanted to be around movers and shakers that would push me to to do my all to do my best. Um, and I would help push them to do their best as well. Yeah. Um, so it was it was a fun little trek to go figure it out. And that's kind of what led into the Vagabond, how we got the idea for doing Vagabond. Um, 2014 was a fun year. I traveled all over. 2015, I got my first show. Um, Emerald Gallery in Humboldt County, um, in Arcata, California actually asked me if I would do my first show. He's been one of my biggest supporters for years. And that was just like one of those opportunities I couldn't pass up. Um, before that though, in, the beginning of 2015, I took another class. I took a two-month intensive study with Micah Evans, and that's where I got to kind of explore some new ideas and different designs, different perks, different stuff like that. It was the first time pipe makers had ever gotten to have a class. There was the first time there was ever a pipe class at Penland School of Craft. And they didn't even necessarily say, yes, you guys can have a pipe class they just said yes you can have a glass blowing class and a bunch of pipe makers showed up and we we just had uh the way we presented ourselves and the way we presented the work it wasn't like a bunch of dreadlock wookies coming off a lot being like look we're making pipes in your studio we like approached it as like you want us to study history and one of the things that's a very prominent is you know the tobacco pipe the shape of a tobacco pipe is historical. So so we went in on a whole study of like the whole class went in on a study of traditional tobacco pipes that all came from different regions of the world where we could, we had to be able to state all of that. It was like, so when they came in and they were like, you guys just made a, you know, a marijuana pipe. And we're like, no, this is actually a traditional cabbage or, ca- um, the one that I made was a cavalier that was an East Pakistani piece that was really popular in the 19th century so when we were able to talk to them about where the pipe design came from why it was designed like that and bring in the history of the tobacco pipe they kind of changed their minds about what formats we could work on by the end of the class we were making you know full tubes you know (laughs) dab setups all that so it was it was a really fun experience and that's fascinating right at the end of that Yeah, right at the beginning of that class, I got asked to do my first show. So I spent five months of 2015 getting ready for the show. And when I did the show, I came out with 49 pieces done with 43 different artists. And the pieces had been made from North Carolina to Vermont, all the way down into Florida. I bounced around the country for five months just making pieces with different artists. And we killed it the show did really really well i had an amazing lineup of different artists it was called we we the design i was working on was the wormhole so we called the show exploration of the wormhole cuz it was about taking as many different artists as possible to Extend their ideas on these pieces.
2: So obviously, uh, collabs are a big thing in the glass scene. Uh, you know, that's a lot of glass artists. Most glass artists, I would say, like to work with other artists on different collabs on pieces on series. Um, who Who are some of the major artists you've collabed with, and who is your has been your favorite person to collab with? Um, uh, it's so
0: hard. I've pretty much collabed with the majority of the big name artists that have been out for a while. Um, Banjo was really fun to collaborate with it, with his energy's awesome. I just did a piece this weekend with Phil Siegel when I was down at the Armadillo project in Austin, Texas, raising money for meals on wheels. Um, that piece was really fun. We made a Armadillo spirit animal and it was just really fun to bounce ideas off of. Um, <clears throat> it's a hard one to say who's, who's like my favorite artist to work with. And because the, one of the great things about most of the artists is we're all pretty like-minded. We got into this all for the same reason. You know, when we started doing this, there wasn't, you know, 16 years ago when I started blowing glass, there wasn't money involved or there was money involved, but there wasn't like, you know, there was the, Oh, you make a $5 spoon. Oh, you can make a $20 spoon. Oh, you make a $50 Sherlock, a $100 Sherlock. Oh, you can make bubbler. And then there were like the people who made tubes and they were like, you know, make bongs and stuff like that. So it was like we didn't have the caliper of artists that we had when we got now that we did when we started. So a lot of us in the beginning, a lot of the old timers got into it just because we've seen – you know, an old Snotgrass piece on lot, or we've seen an old Hugh piece. I bought my first piece from Hugh and that got me started. I was like, I was Bob Snotgrass's first apprentice. And when I got the piece, I was just instantly like mesmerized by it. It was like, all I wanted to do was smoke out of it and figure out how to make more. Like I wanted to make them. And it took me about five years to get to there, but it happened. And when, You know, that's why I had a job as a janitor for so long was because there wasn't any money in it. You know, I was selling glass for other artists. Basically, I'd buy 10 pieces, sell eight of them and get like two free pieces out of the gig. (laughs) And I wasn't trying to make money. I was like trying to get my collection bigger and bigger.
2: So was it mostly the... So, what originally attracted to you uh, attracted you to blowing, Was it the artistry? Was it the freedom? Was it the was it the, the weed? <laughs> were you a big smoker? Is that why? It was or was it just some combination?
0: Oh yeah, I'm I was I'm definitely a big smoker. And back in the day, it was the guys who had the glass pieces were the heads. You know, you never saw some Chad or Joey walking around with this like super nice piece of glass because they couldn't walk into a store and buy it. The only place you could get this stuff was on lot. If you knew a glass blower, you know, there was a handful of stores 20 years ago that were even thinking about carrying glass. Um, so like my first pieces, I got it like a festival, like Oregon country fair. I got a piece in the parking lot because you weren't allowed to actually sell the glass in the fair because you'd get kicked out. So guys would roll the parking lot with their cases, and that's how we would find them. So after meeting five or six artists, I then started buying pieces from them and doing the same thing in different regions. Like, I would go up to Washington, out to Chicago, down to Tennessee, you know, out to New Mexico, spots where there weren't glass blowers yet. And, you know, a spot where there's like 500 to 1,000 10,000 people showing up for festivals and I would just hit the parking lot, roll around, dodge security guards and like, you know, but it was, that was what it, like got me so interested in it was like how to find these pieces. Like, you know, you would hear names of artists like Marcel or Scott Deppe or Banjo or Brock. And there's all these elusive people. Like you never knew who they were and you would see like, one piece at a show from some, from someone that, that they made. And it was like, you know, it was like collecting the rarest baseball cards you'd ever heard of, <laughs> like, yeah. for me, because it was like, I collected cards when I was a kid. And then when I found Glass, I was like, well, I can collect an artist. Like, I can get directly into this one artist and be like, I like his work. And then, but back then, you couldn't, find them you would have to like hunt and search and then when stores started selling glass then it was fun because you could walk into a store and look at look at pieces and then have like wish lists. is like i want to get that two thousand (laughs) dollars scott deppy like i remember saving up all my paychecks for like six months when i was working as a janitor and i was learning to blow glass too and i walked into the store to buy this pedro piece I was so pumped, and it sold the day before I got there. Oh. I'm so bummed <laughs> you but know then, the- it, it just gave me that it just gave me that thrill of, like when you have it, you have to get it right now, you can't skip on stuff. so I have a huge glass collection like I've been collecting glass longer than I blow glass, and yeah. that's how a lot of people I feel like even nowadays I'm watching collectors get into it because they come in, they get into these pieces, they love them, and then they're watching people make them and they're like, man. I'm a little bit creative, like I think I could do this, and it's cool because it's really fun to see uh, everyone getting into it and creating new styles, because the glasses came so long so far, it used to be fume, or you know you had some reversals or a fila philice- or like a raticello, and now it's like you have climbs and recyclers, and you know there's so much stuff' yeah. so much cooler in my opinion.
2: Speaking, like, speaking about the I, different techniques um, you you had mentioned earlier obviously you, you put in a lot of hours and took a bunch of lessons and classes and stuff to, to get to where you are what was uh, would you say was maybe the most challenging technique it, it was for you uh, to, to learn to master
0: I don't think I've mastered anything yet
2: <laughs>
0: um, I'm still still going like one of my favorite things to work with is fume it's my primary like one of the primary techniques that I use because I love the variations of it. I love that. It's always different, no matter how, like I, I try really hard to get things the same all the time, but sometimes you can't do that with the Is It's like the inconsistencies to me are like the greatest part of it. Cause I'm, and then trying to learn how to make it consistent. Now I've gotten like consistent designs and patterns and, to me, that's like been one of the funnest things to try and master. Um, but then, but then there's also like, I don't know. I think one of the hardest things to do, in my opinion, is the drawing on glass. Um, drawing on glass to me is just blows my mind away. There's a couple of the guys that do it, um, you know, Scott Deppie started it, and then there's Punny that crushes it, and T Funk and. WJC, and now we got new guys coming in, doing it all over, Hellraiser, and a bunch of guys that are just totally crushing the game when it comes to doing um, flip disc and filicello and drawing patterns from any type of sacred geometry to cartoon characters. I think that stuff, to me, is like some of the hardest shit. Um, yeah. I've yet to explore too deep into it, because I'm not the best at drawing. I'm more more of a shape guy I like shapes yeah like to explore different shapes and patterns and stuff so
2: cool well we need to take a quick break uh but uh don't go anywhere because we'll be right back with more from jd mapleson here on blazing
1: you're listening to Blazin with bobby black on cannabis radio
4: National Cannabis Industry Association presents the 4th Annual Cannabis Business Summit and Expo, June 12th to the 14th at the Oakland Marriott City Center in Oakland, California. Register now at CannabisBusinessSummit.com Meet industry leaders over 3 days of informative sessions and visit hundreds of vendors along the more than 80,000 square feet of sold out expo floor Hear from over a 100 thought leaders headlined by feature keynote speaker former president of Mexico, Vicente Fox. Join us at the epicenter of the cannabis movement sponsored by the industry's only National Trade Association, the fourth annual Cannabis Business Summit and Expo, June 12th through the 14th. Register now at CannabisBusinessSummit.com. Oh, let the marijuana llama tell you something now. About a game for your phone, gonna make you say, wow! The game's about the game of growing cannabis for cash. Go the seeds, sell the bud, put the savings in the stash. Little by little, your empire goes large. Put the big celebrities inside your entourage. You can choose to play with Snoop or me or Chichin Chong. Cypress Hill, Willie Nelson, Wiz Khalifa with a bong. The name of the game is pink, that's the point. Download and play
3: while you light yourself a joint. Acapulco Gold, California Kush, our strains stretch everywhere too. This is the Cannabis Radio Network.
1: Blazin with Bobby Black.
2: All right, and we are back here on Blazin. Uh, Our guest today is glass artist uh, J.D. Mapleson, uh, director of the documentary film. Vagabong, The American Pipe Dream. So let's talk a little about the film now. Um, How long did it take to shoot and edit and get it all together?
0: April of last year, I wrote up a proposal. So instead of doing a Kickstarter, I wrote up a proposal and I called up a bunch of shops from around the country and I raised up uh, enough money to cover the camera crew because I did the research on how much it would cost for travel expenses and food and lodging for three people to follow me for three weeks. So once I raised up my money um, in June, I think it was June 20th last year, we started filming um, and I had Galen Oates, Dylan and Connor pyroscoptic is Connor's um, handle um, come and we got together on the 19th and Connor's really into the glass industry Pyroscoptic is very heavy in the Philadelphia glass scene. He photographs um, a lot of people working constantly. He travels to all kinds of events and photographs people. So Dylan and Galen, when they came on board for the photography, they had no idea about the glass world. They had never been into a glass blowing studio. They had seen glass pipes. They've smoked off glass pipes, but they had never watched someone make one. They didn't know that there was an industry in a community like ours out there, so it was a really great experience for them. They were really interested in the in it from the get go because they knew nothing about it. Um, and when we started filming on the twentieth, it was it was a lot of fun because um, it was a new experience. None of us had done this before, and we were just trying to figure out what exactly we wanted to do. And I had six artists lined up to come through my studio. Um, we had Uba Tuba, AKM, Mad A, Brando, Etai, and Don Chili Ortega come through the studio. And after that, after four days of blowing glass, we went to Studio Alchemy because they had a big house party going on where Banjo just finished up a class. And then Friday morning, we hopped in a we got a big van and we hopped in the van and headed down to the Degenerate Flame Off at where 16 artists were competing. And it was a lot of fun. <clears throat> um,
2: what What's the Degenerate Flame was, Off like? Can you tell us? It's, is it Is it similar to any other events that you've been to or is it kind of an industry uh, insider thing?
0: It's unlike any event um, out there. They get 16 artists together to compete. Um, over the course of 10 hours. And they have, like, they have a limitation of what they can bring for materials that kind of levels the playing field so everyone has an equal chance. And so on Friday, everyone gets together, and you get to watch 16 artists blow glass. And there's a you know, bunch of booths there where you can go and get merch from different artists. You can go and buy colors from our color manufacturers you can get tools from our tool makers and there's some live music going on. It's pretty fun. It's, it's one of my favorite events. Um, cool. sadly to say this year, this year in 2017, we didn't have it. Um, hopefully we'll be back next year, better and bigger. Um, there's just some new things and city ordinances that they have to deal with. Um, but it was really fun cause you get to watch everyone compete for Friday. And then on Saturday, It's live demos all day long from like 20 to 30 different artists. So I was one of the demoing artists, so we brought the camera crew down and we watched everyone compete. We did interviews with people. After we saw the winners, we all went out to Marcel's shop. And from there, we went down to Darby's, Blue Glass with Darby and his son Caleb for a few days. Hopped an airplane on Thursday down to Huntington, where we worked with 14 artists at Ziggy's um, five-year anniversary, which was a blast.
2: Um, Ziggy's is where I met up with you. That's where we got to meet. Yeah, well, you invited me over to check out the film. I got to get a little sneak preview before the official premiere, which was awesome. Thank you. And I was pretty impressed with it. So, okay, so you were at Darby's, and and, uh, that was one of my favorite parts of the film, because uh, you know, just showing the the family vibe and and how open Darby and his family were to you guys was pretty was pretty nice to see.
0: Yeah, Darby's place is awesome. We actually took the first day off just to go swimming. It was it was nice to have a break, and then from there we did a bunch of work. And Darby's, he's just such an amazing guy because he's such a family man. He has three boys and his wife. One of his sons works full time in the studio. The other two are still in high school, so it's a lot of fun to see, you know, that whole family aspect of everything. Because, you know, we are, you know, most of most of these art, most of us artists are family guys. Like I have a twenty year old. My daughter will be twenty next month, or in a couple of weeks. So, um, wow. you know, it's the thing. Even though we are glass pipe makers, we still have families. We supported our families off this. So used to be a lot harder than it is now.
2: Yeah. After Darby's and after Ziggy's, what what was next uh, on the road trip in the film? Take us through the rest of it.
0: Nice. From there, we went to Jag, just another glassblower. And he's been like one of my really good friends for a long time. And we travel a lot together, but we never worked together um, on a project. So we made my favorite piece from the film and kind of to me, what the essence of the film really, the piece represented the whole essence of the film, where we made an American flag wormhole, um, but a whole set. So it had an American flag money bag and American flag Sherlock and American flag, you know, bong and little little shot glass slash Q-tip holder. And it was really sweet because it just really embraced that American pipe dream where it's like you go to school and, you know, the American dream that you're taught at school and what some people's family might teach them might vary from someone else. So it was really cool to get everyone's different perspectives. And for us as glass pipe makers, it's like we were demonized. You know, in 2003, the, you know, Ashcroft, the attorney general, set a bullseye on glass pipe makers and sent out Operation Pipe Dreams. And a lot of my friends got in trouble from that. And a lot of people lost their jobs. Tommy Chong did time in jail from it. And what we did was as an industry and a community, we dove deeper underground and we hid. I couldn't tell my landlord I was a glass pipe maker. You know, no one would rent to me as a glass pipe maker. I I was a glass artist. I made marbles and beads. And I had to have this portfolio in order to show them And then, you know, kind of hide behind this, you know, this image and be an artist when in reality I was just being a pipe maker. I was just doing what I wanted to do. But there was just those, you know, those terms that you have to put out there so people will, you know, rent to you. Because it was hard back in the day when, you know, weed wasn't legal, you know, there was no, there was Some medical in some states, but not all states had medical. So a lot of the guys around the country still, to this day, work under kind of like a in a gray area.
2: Yeah, the bong. The bong was a dirty word. You weren't allowed to say the word bong. I remember from Uh, champs and from and from other places.
0: It was the worst four-letter word that you could say in a head shop. Yeah, you you could say any four-letter word but that in a head shop. And it's an amazing place where we are in history right now with everything. We have artists that are pushing the boundaries every day on what you can and can't do with the medium. So it's really fun to see, you know, Banjo going out there and creating these divies, these huge pieces that represent, like, you know, a beautiful goddess surrounded in light. But it's all represented through glass, so it's a lot of fun. And then yeah. um, you also get to see shop companies like Mothership and Scott Depi that are in ju- Jake C that are just pushing the boundaries of function so heavy, and Quave he's you know these guys just they set the boundary every other month on like what is possible to be done with glass you know and it's really cool to you know have some of my best friends in the in, you know, out there, just creating work that every day I see, I'm just like blown away from them.
2: These yeah, I, happening. I mean, I was blown away by some of the art that you sent me from the film to use in the article. Uh, we should mention that the glass that the um, American Flag series that you're talking about was actually on the cover of the uh, Green, uh, Greenleaf Magazine uh, issue that we're talking about, which is out right now. And then, so okay, so you did that with Jag, and then uh, and then the film ends at Chalice. Uh, which is, of course, the big uh, glass festival, glass hash music and art festival put on by Hitman, uh, Doug and Hitman and all those guys and D-Rec. Tell us a little about your impressions of Chalice.
0: Chalice is fun. This was my second year doing it, or that was my second year doing Chalice. I was at the first one. And this one, I really liked the layout of the venue. It was cool with the trees and the grass. San Bernardino where the first one was, it was just It's a parking lot. It was hot. It wasn't my favorite scene. So, um, yeah, so Chalice is a really great experience because it's music that everyone likes to listen to, and then you get this glass blowing so people can come out and meet all the artists. And then you get the hash competition, and for me as a heavy smoker, that's a great thing. It's like I want to see who's, you know, doing the biggest stuff with the hash industry, making the best doing all that stuff. So it's fun to come out and watch and be a part of. And it's really cool because um, this year for Chalice, they're, I'm sharing a 40 by 40 air-conditioned tent with another company. I haven't quite figured out who yet, but I know it's going to be pretty big if they're making me share, um, yeah. where we're going to show the vagabond all weekend long at different times throughout the week and we'll have a schedule so people can show up to the Vagabond Lounge at Chalice this year and they can watch it for their first oh, time if awesome. they want.
2: That's awesome. And
0: it's in an air and it's in an air conditioned tent, so that'll be really nice and comfortable for everybody. And on top of it we're gonna be showing the first glass pipe documentary which was called which is called taboo Glass, which was put out in two thousand and three, which is mostly of old pieces, old classic pieces that really helped lead the way to the work that we're doing nowadays. It's really cool. For the time, it it was every day before I went into my studio and blew glass for probably a year I watched that movie. Like I, I listened to it and I can tell you what's on the screen. It's one of my favorites. So to be able to show that to everybody is really amazing. But so we're going to cool. show Taboo Glass then we're gonna show the second pipe film, Degenerate Art, which is the one Marble Slinger put out.
2: Right. Yeah. Which
0: I can't even believe was six years ago. It feels <laughs> like yesterday. And then we'll do um, Vagabond. So it'll be on all three movies will be on a continual loop for all three days. So everyone can get tired of them if they want. <laughs> but it's just it's it's a nice spot we felt the nice thing to do is to have like a nice air conditioned area that people can kind of get away from the heat. And when they come in, at any point that they come in, there's something about the glass world that will be on there from the past to the present. It's really important to remember the past and what we used to do and how this industry was formed. And, you know, it was formed through, you know, a lot of hard work from a bunch of people. And it's fun just to go back and see some of those pieces, some of those
2: relics. So the film had, it had its premiere on March 30th at the chapel in San Francisco, right? So how, how has the yeah. film been received so far by the people who have seen it? And uh, have, have you have any plans to enter it into any festivals or, or theaters around the country at all?
0: So right now we did the chapel, which was awesome, because that was the, not only that was it the first time for people to see the film. We also had all the work that was made along the road trip saved up, and we brought that out for everyone to view for the first time and purchase. Um, so there's a few galleries around the country now that have a couple of the pieces that were from the film. Um, we also released a book that had all the work from the film and then some photos from the film as well that we released that day as well, and so it was a lot of fun. The, the best part for me was the owner of the chapel, um, this gentleman Jack, coming up to me and telling me that he had no idea what to expect with this film and he was completely blown away. He's like, I don't smoke. I have no desire to smoke, but at the same point at the end of this film, I want to watch more. He's like, that was really well put together. That was, He's like, I'm interested to see it. He's like, do you guys ever have another event like this that you want to do. Let me know. He's like, I will gladly have you. And so that was, that was a really big, awesome accomplishment um, from there I've done a bunch of viewings and the reception the what I've gotten back has been really well we did a viewing in Portland um, the week after the first viewing in San Francisco where we did 24 hours notice and we pulled in 60 people for the viewing and it was just a lot of, it was mostly just glass blowers and a few collectors but it was a lot of fun and it's really cool to see the artists and the people who are part of the industry, how well they appreciate it and they like it, it really makes me feel like I, I kind of nailed it on the head.
2: All right. Well, uh, JD, I wish you uh, all the best with the uh, future airings of the film and anything else that you uh, choose to do with your production company, Borrowed Time Productions. Uh, once again, the name of the film is Vagabond: the American pipe dream it will be playing at chalice Uh, and hopefully in uh, some theaters around the country. Uh, If you have a chance, go check it out. Uh, It's definitely worth seeing. Uh, JD, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us today on Blazin'.
0: Yeah, thank you again so much for having me. You guys have a wonderful day, and I look forward to seeing you at Chalice.
2: You too, man. You too. Okay, guys, and that's about it for this week's edition of Blazin'. Follow us on social media, Facebook. Give us a like. Leave us some feedback, facebook.com slash blazingwithbobbyblack. You can also follow me, uh, my personal media accounts, uh, at bobbyblack on Twitter, at bobbyblack420 on Facebook and Instagram. Um, we will be posting links to all the good stuff we talked about today on our Facebook page. Be sure to check that out. If you want to know more, you can also check out uh, greenleafmag.com, uh, the latest issue of Greenleaf Magazine, which has my feature on J.D. Mapleson and the Vagabond movie, as well as some killer glass galleries and an interview with glass artist Darby Holmes, so be sure to check that out. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor of Blazing or if you have a product you would like us to review please feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook page or email us at blazing at cannabisradio.com. Next week, we're going to have a very special episode of Blazing. I will be uh, coming to you live from the Hitman Coffee Shop in Los Angeles uh, when I'll be interviewing another filmmaker, uh, Mr. Kevin Booth, the director of American Drug War and American Drug War Two, among many other projects. So don't miss that. It's going to be uh, pretty awesome. Uh, until then, this is Bobby Black saying... Keep on blazing, my friends.
3: The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without proper consent of CannabisRadio.com is prohibited.
1: Imagine your new bathroom